Welcome to Take the Lead Radio with Dr. Diane Hamilton, where she interviews some of the most successful leaders, entrepreneurs, authors, speakers, and other individuals who will inspire you to take the lead in your career and personal life. And now, here is Dr. Diane Hamilton. Welcome to Take the Lead Radio. This is Dr. Diane Hamilton, and I'm so glad you joined us today because we have Darian Rodriguez-Hayman and Lori Arudeman. Uh, Darian is a keynote speaker, best-selling author, and an expert in the area of nonprofits. And Lori is the author of Betting on You. It's going to be a great show. I hope you stay tuned, and we'll be back right after this. Are you interested in finding out more about how HR professionals or leadership consultants can become certified to give the groundbreaking new Curiosity Code Index Assessment? The certification program will provide the ability to administer the assessment at reduced rates. Participants will learn how to interpret the results of the CCI, as well as how to deliver an innovation plan workshop designed to improve curiosity, engagement, innovation, and productivity. To find out more, go to curiositycode.com. I am here with Darian Rodriguez-Hayman, who is a keynote speaker, best-selling author, moderator. Everything in his life work is about helping people help. It is so nice to have you here, Darian. Thanks so much for having me. Excited to be with you. Well, I was excited to have you here. I saw that you served as executive director of Craigslist Foundation. I had Craig on the show, and that was a lot of fun. He uh, he he was really a, a very interesting uh, to talk to. And I was just looking at your background, you have done a, a lot of things, from co-hosting TEDx events to emceeing programs to building all these programs. You even served as an editor-in-chief, I saw, of an online magazine. Um, we have some things in common that we've done together, which is great, but I know your your most successful book, Nonprofit Management 101, uh, just came out with second edition. Congratulations on that. Thank you so much. Oh, well, I just, you know, I, I know you've done so many things, and I, I would like to get just kind of a background what led to your success. I think it's always nice to hear people's backstory. Yeah, sure. I mean, I I think of myself as a little bit of a dot-com refugee. I started and sold one of the first digital ad agencies. So basically, right out of college, I started a company with some of my college buddies, and it turned out to be really successful. It was kind of right time, right place. It was um, in the late, mid to late 90s, right when the internet and the web was first kind of, you know, becoming a tool uh, for people to use, and everyone was designing websites at the time. Uh, but nobody was really, nobody had figured out how to advertise through the internet. And the people that were trying to do that were taking these very antiquated views and basically applying television, billboard, you know, mentalities to the internet and weren't getting great results. And we were a bunch of kids that just got out of school that didn't know how advertising was supposed to work. <laughs> and so we figured it out and the company grew at 600% a year for four years in a wow. row. Uh, we had almost 400 employees and over half a billion dollars in annual billings, um, you know, and, and grew to offices in over 20 countries uh, at, at its peak. Um, but I think the thing that was most important for me is we had 22 married couples come out of that company. Uh, wow. It's called Beyond Interactive. Uh -huh. So it was very much a family. And, you know, I really enjoyed getting to lead business development. I was the chief interactive evangelist, so I did a lot of public speaking and educating CEOs of ad agencies twice my age about how internet marketing was fundamentally different than traditional advertising. And um, 
you know, but once uh, when we got into the economic crash in 2000, 2001, uh, you know, we had to go through massive layoffs. And it was a pretty rude awakening for 24 year old Darian, who really did believe we were a family. And all of a sudden we had to, you know, make some serious cuts. And that didn't really feel right for me. And so I got disillusioned. I wound up going on sabbatical, traveling the world for six months and just kind of revisiting my purpose. Uh, and I've actually had the chance to do that three times in my career, which has been transformative every time. Uh, but this particular first trip, I really decided, had kind of an epiphany, that I wanted to devote my career to social impact and that I was done focusing my life on making money for myself and other people. And that's what led me into the nonprofit world, led me to really kind of starting and running Craigslist Foundation for five years and all the work I've done since. Well, I mean, you really have become the the go-to expert. Your book has been hailed as the Bible of nonprofit leadership. I mean, what's that like to hear that kind of response to your writing? It's going to be pretty amazing. Well, it's kind of interesting because just like with the Internet and advertising, I kind of came into it with beginner's mind. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I didn't really know much about nonprofits at all. And um, I one of my buddies from the dot com days um, had, you know, after I got back from my sabbatical, decided I wasn't going to really focus on the business world anymore. I just started organizing fundraisers for different cultural themes and causes and Uh, And they were getting bigger and more successful. And one of my buddies who was coming to the parties, and I knew him from the dot-com world, was on the board of the Craigslist Foundation, which had been totally dormant. And, um, you know, and so he kind of offered it to me as something I could revitalize and run with and have a brand behind the work I was doing to make the world a better place. And in the process, I did some deep listening to figure out sort of what was missing and how I could be helpful in the social impact arena. And I discovered it's a really fragmented sector and it works very differently than the business world. Um, you know, you've, you've never seen a business plan without a competitive analysis, right? right it would right. be ridiculous to mm-hmm. think you would run out and start a, a company without looking at the landscape and surveying it and seeing who's out there and what they're doing and how you're different. Whereas nobody does that in the nonprofit world. People, you know, their mom gets sick and they want to run out and say, you know, like cure a disease or mm-hmm. save a certain animal or whatever it is, they get inspired and motivated, which is great. But then they just kind of run out and start an organization. Right. And, and that creates a hugely fragmented sector. It creates a sector with a lot of people, you know, basically duplicating efforts and rebuilding the wheel. Right. And so, you know, and, and once I realized that, and I kind of felt like there was no front door to the movement, um, you know, and everyone was having to learn by doing. And there was a huge amount of inefficiencies. I decided to create something called Nonprofit Boot Camp. It was kind of like Lollapalooza for nonprofits. Yeah. Uh, you know, within one year, it became the largest nonprofit gathering in San Francisco Bay Area history. And we had 10,000 graduates over the five years I ran it. Wow. And that was really where I discovered my life's work around helping people help because it's actually a mirror image of what Craig and his team are doing at Craigslist, which is people helping people. That's kind of their mantra. Mm -hmm. And when I looked at applying that vision into the nonprofit and social impact space, you know, I really felt like we shouldn't be picking individual causes or organizations over others. We needed to sort of fulfill Craigslist's ethos around this egalitarian, you know, open to everybody and really just helping the little guys. And 
So this notion of helping people help and connecting people who want to make the world a better place to the best practices, the helpful resources and the contacts they need to do that was the vision behind our work there. And it became my life's work. Well, that's really impressive um, to, to get into helping people do these, uh, this kind of situation. And I agree that you have so many people reinventing the wheel. And if any time you can make it be less, uh, you know, time consuming, less problematic. Uh, I think your work has really helped in that respect. And I, I know it was kind of hard to introduce you on the show because you do so many things and, I, and people have that with me when they ask me what I do. I'm like, well, uh, <laughs> how much time do you have? So you, you have these, <laughs> these different things. Uh, I know you give a lot of keynotes and what you, I mentioned you co-hosted both, uh, TEDx Somo, uh, Soma and, uh, Presidio, right? Um, I did, yeah. What's that like to co-host? Well, it's been interesting. I mean, so, you know, the, the boot camp I just mentioned basically turned into the Nonprofit Management 101 book project because mm -hmm. it was sort of the, you know, the mirror image of that as a book because there was clearly a, a much bigger national audience that needed the same information and resources. And once I started getting into the space of producing events and bringing leaders together to inspire them to motivate them to action um you know especially given the fact that i have a bit of a business background it was clear that there was you know a need to really play and, and look at this whole space of social entrepreneurship kind of the gray area between the for-profit and the non-profit worlds that are traditionally thought of as very distinct and i've never been a big fan of walls and boundaries and so <laughs> The idea of looking at mission-led businesses, like right now I run New Me Organic Teas Foundation, um, and those guys have been an amazing mission-led business. And so the whole world of social entrepreneurship is very fascinating to me. Uh, and so when I had the opportunity to host these two TEDx events and really look at, you know, I think my mom's a teacher, and so I've always fancied myself an educator, and I love the idea of trying to communicate big ideas and figure out a logical progression so you can encapsulate them, put them together in a format and in a flow that people will really retain and not just be inspired by, but be inspired to action. Uh, and Ted has a great platform for that. And so right, I was able right. to work with, you know, people from TaskRabbit before anybody knew who they were and, um, you know, amazing leaders from all these different companies and organizations. Uh, Chip Conley from Joie de Vie went on to Airbnb and all kinds of incredible leaders. And um, it was just a really interesting format because it forces people to be very succinct and, and concise uh, and really, you know, try to sit with what's the essence of what they want to communicate. And that's a lot of what I do as a public speaker and, uh, you know, a trainer and consultant. Well, and as a speaker, you've uh, been on stage with so many amazing people. And we talked a little before the show. I know you've uh, been on with, what, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, Apple's yeah. Steve Wozniak, presidential can candidate Ralph Nader. Um, I, I I haven't met Ralph, but the other two I, I do have met. And uh, I, you had a story. I wanted to hear your Sandra Day O'Connor story. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sandra Day O'Connor was actually my graduation speaker at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. Ah. Uh -huh. And so, you know, and plus she was obviously the first female Supreme Court justice. And right. I've always had a, you know, a passion and appreciation for the law. And so, and there was one thing that she said when I graduated uh, that was really powerful for me, which is she said that the secret to success in life is about learning how to disagree agreeably. 
Yeah. And I think for me, especially as I've met really powerful, wealthy and sort of accomplished folks in the world, you know, I think in my experience, they're so used to people kind of kissing their butt and just saying yes to whatever they suggest that when you take a different approach and actually challenge them respectfully and with good reason, not just for the hell of it, Mm -hmm. uh, that has really been interesting. And it's led to some you know, friendships and kinships with some really accomplished folks in my day. I've gotten to work with Richard Branson and Bill McDonough and Paul Hawken. And um, so, you know, those words always sat with me. And then fast forward like 10 years or whatever it was, probably about 15 years ago now. Um, but we were we were the co-keynotes at the Conference of Southwest Foundations, oh. uh, which is a, a gathering of a lot of different foundations and funders. And I got to speak first and I actually quoted her and talked about her being my graduation speaker. And then after she spoke, which was amazing, uh, she didn't have a ride home. She was just going to like call a cab or something. <laughs> uh-huh. And so I gave her a ride home and I got to like drive Sandra Day O'Connor home. It was That's the coolest amazing. thing. So I really got to sit with her and talk to her for a while. And she connected me with her son, who's also here in San Francisco. And it was lovely. Yeah, she, she is really a wonderful woman. I, I had seen her about three or four years ago at my club. She played golf uh, at, at the club, and she was sitting alone, in, uh, and I hadn't seen her since probably late 70s, 80s, early 80s, when my sister had gotten married, and then she, she performed this ceremony. And I, um, I went after her. I asked her, I said, I don't know if you remember this, but you performed her uh, wedding ceremony, and they forgot their wedding ring. They had to use your turquoise ring that you were wearing <laughs> and she that's goes hilarious. she said do i remember it because i tell that story all the time <laughs> oh that's so funny yeah she's from arizona so she's yeah, uh, yeah. got a lot of turquoise but she, yeah it was funny yeah she's an amazing woman uh, she really it, was, is. it was really cool and then yeah you mentioned wozniak too uh-huh. i got to speak alongside him and he and i have stayed in touch he actually gave me a testimonial for my book recently and oh, that's nice. uh so yeah it's been amazing to see some of the the luminaries that are out there and especially when you look at the overlap between people like Wozniak, who are hugely successful in the business world, and social impact, mm-hmm. I think that there's a really interesting Venn diagram there where, you know, a lot of people talk about how nonprofits could be more businesslike. And I agree, there's a lot of things nonprofit leaders can learn from business leaders. But I also think the flip side is true. And there's a lot that business leaders can learn from nonprofits. You know, I have done more than a thousand interviews on the show, and I don't know if anybody's mentioned Venn diagrams. And then today I had two people <laughs> mention Venn diagrams. And it's so interesting. Everything is coming into this intersection of ideas. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's, it's a Venn diagram of Venn diagrams. It is a Venn diagram. Very meta. It is. It's so funny. But uh, as I was looking at some of the things that you do, um, you give a lot of you get i saw your sample speaking topics and i thought it was mm-hmm. interesting to look at trends in philanthropy and social innovation some of the things you talk about yeah. and of course social media for good i love that but you you focus a lot on fundraising tips and building fundraising Absolutely. boards uh it, what's your favorite speaking topic and just wanted to see uh what makes you focus on fundraising as so much well, there's sort of two questions there, right? Mm-hmm. In terms of um, what makes me focus on fundraising, it's mm-hmm. kind of like the doctor that, uh, you know, is fluent in administering penicillin because that's right. what people need, right? Yeah, right, like, right? And if you look at the research and the data in the nonprofit world, 
um, you know, a, a full 50% of nonprofit executive directors, which is the equivalent of a for-profit CEO, they leave not only their job, but the sector within five years. Mm-hmm. And if you drill down into this sort of leaky leadership pipeline, what you find is the number one reason why they leave is because of difficulties and frustrations around fundraising. And the second most common reason is frustrations with their boards. Right. And so, and if you put the two together in my experience and you look at the topic of getting your board to fundraise, it's something that perplexes lots of nonprofits. And that's actually a lot of the consulting and coaching work that I do is exactly on that Venn diagram, that exact topic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's really just, you know, I discovered early on that, that those are the things that nonprofit leaders and social impact leaders, because I do a lot of work with mission-led for-profits and social enterprises, that's where their struggles are. And for me, you know, my background is in sales and business development, and those skills really translated perfectly into nonprofit fundraising. So it's something that I learned how to do by doing as the, as the leader of Craigslist Foundation, but then I also organized conferences, wrote books, you know, did public speaking and coaching and consulting to help other leaders really learn how to refine their skills and engage their boards. And money is basically the ball bearings of social change. You know, Gandhi and Mother Teresa, they were all fundraisers. And (laughs) I think there's a lot of shame in fundraising. And so I I talk a lot about how to change the lens and the perspective, uh, really the paradigm around what it means to raise money. And, um, and do so for a cause that you believe in. And so that's something I'm really passionate about and it's something nonprofit leaders really need. But to answer your question about my favorite topic, I actually invented a format that I call solution salons. It's nothing too complicated, but in general, you know, I've done a lot of work with the United Nations, developing the SDGs and speaking at their conferences. And the UN is probably the best example of a conference organizer who gets amazing leaders together, but then talks at them for two or three days and sends them home. Uh It's actually very similar to the reason why most nonprofit board meetings are so useless is, you know, it's 90% monologue and you're giving all these updates and FYIs Uh instead of problem solving and moving Uh the work forward. Uh, And so what what I did was I created this really simple format uh, that I call solution salons where you go around the circle and everyone gets to answer two questions. What are you up to and how can we help? And so everyone gets to give sort of their personal and organizational elevator pitch really briefly, but then they get to share one specific challenge or obstacle or need with the group. And what's amazing is every time I've done this, I've done it for thousands of leaders all over the world, every single person always gets their needs met multiple times over. They even just the process of identifying what is that first domino, the thing that I need that's going to set wheels in motion and move my work forward is helpful. It's an exercise in mindfulness and intentionality. But then there's also this really strong and visceral sense of community and action where, you know, this idea that like, oh, guess what? Even when other people are taking their turn, they're bringing up challenges and struggles that I have, too, because we all share so much in common. Uh, and, And this notion, the best way I've heard it said is that we've entered a world where everyone is smarter than anyone, right? It's kind of the the concept behind crowdsourcing uh, innovation. And the point is that no matter how much I know or any amazing speaker I could get up in front of an audience might know, we collectively know more. And so how do we tap the wisdom of the masses and go back to this idea I mentioned earlier, which is every time I do public speaking, one of the first things I typically say is that if you leave this talk inspired, I actually haven't done my job my job is to inspire you to action to make sure that when you leave this talk you're in a better position to move your work forward 
Yeah, um, I, I and like so that you I call think, them thank you baiters. I thought that was a <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. You know, I think it's just there's so many heady ideas and nebulous and abstract concepts and strategies, and those philosophies are important for context. But especially in the world of social impact, I mean, nonprofits by design are basically always under resourced, and if they bring in more money, they just increase their programs. Uh, because the need in general always far outstrips the, the you know, the amount of resources to supply. Right. Uh, and so, uh, you know, nonprofit leaders don't really have a lot of time to waste to sit around talking about heady and interesting ideas that might inspire them. But they're already inspired. They've dedicated their lives to these causes. What they need are tactical, practical tips and tools. And that's basically my life's work. Um, you know, whether it's through books or speaking or coaching and consulting or running organizations myself. Well, you do a lot of things, like I said, like you just mentioned, and I said, you know, you're, but you mentioned advising the UN, but you've also advised Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, uh, and you were appointed uh, as commissioner for the environment uh, by San Francisco Mayor Gavin Newsom, and I said, you know, all the stuff you've done. How do you advise the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation? What advice do they need? Well, I mean, I think anytime you have somebody who's looking to deploy more capital than has ever been deployed in the world's (laughs) history, Uh uh, there's going to be some challenges to that, right? Whether it's about how do you work with the smaller guys who aren't able to take a multi-million dollar grant. Uh, In the case of the work I was doing with them, it was more around how to use technology to support and advance social impact. Mm -hmm. And that's also some work I've done with the UN and really how I started initially working with them. Uh, But again, it goes back to this Venn diagram, this overlap Mm -hmm. of, you know, in this case, how do we use technology? Just like you mentioned the social media for nonprofits, uh, you know, conference series that I started. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a lot of folks in the social impact world that are not nearly as fluent in leveraging and utilizing some of the technology-based tools out there. And so how can we put those to work and employ them to advance our goals around social impact um, and really build the capacity of not just one or two groups or leaders, but the entire sector. Well, I, I think it's really interesting, uh, the focus you take. I don't think I get a lot of nonprofit focus on this show as much as I'd like to. And I, I know you're, I mentioned your book, uh, your second edition had come out. You've written several yeah. books. Uh, are you, do you have more in you? Uh, we'll see if my wife gives me some uh, some free time. We have a four-year-old now, so it's uh, a lot harder than it was uh, earlier. But, um, yeah, I mean, I really, again, my, like I said, my mom's a teacher, and I, I fancy myself an educator, and I, I feel like writing books is sort of part of that. Um, and it's been a really helpful and, and useful experience. I've gotten very, you know, positive comments from thousands of leaders all over the world. But, you know, both of the books have been translated into Portuguese for the Brazilian audience. Oh. Um and so, you know, they've really made an impact. And no matter how many people I can reach through, you know, a post on social media or an article that I write or a speech that I give, the audience of a book is significantly larger. And yeah. so from a standpoint of, of really advancing my goals, which is about maximizing my sphere of positive influence, um, and that was an epiphany that I had on that first sabbatical that led me to devote my life to social impact, um, you know, the the idea that kind of came to me when I was hanging out in Thailand, mm-hmm. um, you know, was that basically the, you know, the, the foundation of life is change and everything we do or don't do and say or don't say, it creates change and it kind of emanates and ripples out from us just like ripples in a pond. Um, but it's not two dimensional, it's three dimensional. So it's this sphere of influence. And so 
knowing that we all have our own spheres of influence, how do I make it as big as possible and as positive as possible? So this notion of maximizing my sphere of positive influence really has become a guiding light to me. And then in the context of that, uh, you know, especially because I've taken three of these sabbaticals and I've had a chance to sit pretty deeply with some some profound ideas, I call it epiphany hunting. Um, uh-huh. You know, that's where I've come up with, you know, this notion of helping people help, uh, you know, deciding to really devote some serious attention to the work I've done in the green economy, um, you know, and then more recently, kind of decided to become a full-time dabbler. And instead of focusing on any one cause or organization, uh, or starting another company or nonprofit or joining one, uh, you know, when I took my sabbatical in 2015, I made a conscious decision not to do that and instead to be able to work with lots of different causes and organizations, uh, which is what I'm doing now. Again, as a coach, a consultant, part-time executive director, part-time editor, author, speaker, etc. cetera. Uh, and that's been really rewarding for me. I'm a little ADD and so, you know, I, I like to think I have a burst mentality and I joke and say that gray is my least favorite color. Uh-huh. And so I get to dive into different causes and organizations and challenges, you know, that solve something and, and move an idea forward and then move on to the next one. And uh, that's been really rewarding for me. Well, I love that you're curious. And since I'm a curiosity expert, that's exactly um, how I see things. You know, I want I'd like to learn and just push the boundaries just a little bit, find something else and explore that. And it sounds like we have a lot in, exactly. in that respect. But yeah, no question. I, I think a lot of people will want to know uh, how to follow you, get your books and, and just learn more from you. Is there some uh, site or any kind of social media you'd like to, to share? Not so much. I mean, the books are, are both on Amazon. Um, so those are pretty readily available online. Uh, you know, I'm very happy to have people contact me on my mobile phone or email. Oh. Uh, so, you know, you're, you're totally happy to distribute that information. My cell phone is 415-637-5062. And in general, I do a lot of pro bono work. So I'm always happy to talk to people at no cost and find out about what they're up to in the world of social impact and point into some resources. Um, you know, so that's happy really to help generous. your readers yeah. and listeners however I can. Thank you. I, that's really generous of you. And it was so nice to have you on the show. I really enjoyed it, Darian. Thank you so much. My pleasure. You take care and have a great day. Okay. You too. We'll be back right after this message. Curiosity is a critical and direct link to improving motivation and communication-based issues that challenge organizations. By improving workers' curiosity, you can enhance employee engagement, emotional intelligence, innovation, productivity, and many other byproducts that come with that intrinsic but underutilized attribute. To find out more about how to improve curiosity, please go to curiositycode.com. I am here with Lori Rudiman, who is the former human resources leader turned writer, entrepreneur, and speaker. Uh, CNN recognized her as one of the top five career advisors in the U.S., and her work's been featured on NPR, The New Yorker, USA Today, Wall Street Journal, and Vox. She frequently delivers keynote speeches at businesses and business uh, management events around the world, hosts popular podcasts focused on fixing work. And when she's not on the air, she lives with her husband and cats. <laughs> so it's nice to have you here. I wrote, it says Vox. Did you mean Fox? I'm looking at the bio. I, I, where are no. you? Nope, it means Vox, okay. V-O-X. It's I, a lovely website, and it's got a ton of great information. They publish 
interesting research and articles. So I'm happy to be a part of the team when they ask me to write. I need to look into that one more. I, I, I thought that was what you meant, but I wasn't sure. And you're, you're just so um, published everywhere. And I think it's really impressive. And I, I know that you do a lot of work that ties into kind of the, some of the stuff that I do because I work on human behavior and uh, performance kind of issues. So I, I, I was looking forward to this. I wanted to get a little background on you. I, I gave a little bit about what you've done, but can you just uh, give us your backstory of how you reached this level of success? Sure, sure, thanks for asking. Mm -hmm. Well, just like most people in America, I never knew what I wanted to do when I grew up. I came from a working class family. Nobody had ever been to college. My dad had graduated from high school, but my mom had a GED and what they did was what so many families did. They went to work and complained about it. <laughs> so when I showed an aptitude for education and learning and reading, my family didn't know what to do with me. And thankfully, I had a high school boyfriend whose family kind of took me under their wing and said, this is how you go to college. And so I just followed in those footsteps and graduated with about $48,000 in student debt in 1997, oh, which in today's dollars would be well over $100,000. And I thought, oh, my God, I can't afford to go to graduate school. What the heck am I going to do when I grow up? And the answer was to go to my alumni department and say, hey, I need a job. And someone found me an unfilled internship in a human resources department. And that set me on an almost 15-year journey in corporate HR. And it was great. I paid mm -hmm. my bills. I did amazing work. But I hated it. And I was not a good fit. And so from there, I sprung out into the world of entrepreneurship and that's kind of how I am doing what I am today, writing, speaking, and talking about fixing work because I realize how broken it is both internally from my own experience as well as systemically. You know, that's so interesting because um, I, I actually took a job as a Kelly girl, they used to call them, you know, the Kelly now, uh, it's not just women, but um, they, we would take a you know, a day job, a week here or there. And I almost didn't answer the phone one day and I took this one job because it was only one day and I ended up working in that company 20 years. And you just yeah. never... <laughs> you just Such never... a funny story. I, I... And I have to tell you, I'm dear friends with the former CEO of Kelly. Ah. His name is Carl Camden. And the evolution of Kelly from providing work daily, which is something they still do, to mm -hmm. being this really interesting gig economy company that's in the center of like filling STEM jobs and research jobs with PhDs who really only work for a couple of weeks, do the things they need to do and then move on has been just a really neat evolution in our company because before it was, you know, if you needed work, it was not something to be proud of, right? Mm -hmm. You just build these day jobs. And right. now even people with PhDs and sci scientists are saying, you know what, I'm going to write my own ticket. I'm going to do it on my own terms. And I love that. I welcome that. And I really applaud it. So huh, Kelly girls know. today are different than they were in the 1970s and 80s and 90s. So I love, I love that story. Oh, I want to have the Kelly. Uh, you said it was the CEO. Who do you, who'd you say you knew? The CEO of Kelly? Yeah, the former CEO, former CEO. Carl Camden. Mm, Carol, yeah, oh, yeah. Carl, uh -huh. Yeah. And uh, he's, 
just done great work. That would that would be interesting. I'd like to interview him. I think that you know I didn't realize that about the PhDs with them. Um, I have to look into that since that's what I have. Um, I'm always interested in different uh, opportunities of what the gig economy. You know, we're also affected right now with some of this stuff. Uh, some of it, is, I'm sure, being done virtually, of course. But uh, it's it's an interesting look at HR and some of the things that I saw you talk about or how HR gets everything wrong and how to fix it. Um, uh, is that a speech you give or is that a, what, what is that? I, I thought that was really interesting on your um, one sheet. Yeah, I um, it's more of a rant, although I have given speeches. <laughs> I really feel as if the world of HR was built for a workforce that existed 40 years ago. And now more and more, the share of people who are full-time employed workers is smaller and smaller. And then you have all of these individuals who are falling under finance and procurement because they own their own business or they come in as consultants. And they really are treated like second-class citizens. And HR will say, well, we're not responsible for training them or making sure they're protected from sexual harassment or deviant behavior because they're contractors. And it's like, get with the program. Everybody is technically a contractor. We're all, you know, employment at will. Mm -hmm. So this idea that full-time employees and contractors are different is really only for compliance purposes and tax purposes. But the human heart is the human heart. And that's what I really try to drive home with HR professionals all over the United States and increasingly across the globe. Well, and you drive home a lot of important points. I know we talked a little before the show about the four buckets you talk about now. Did you write about those four buckets in your book, Betting on You, that's coming out, or is that something in addition to what you're writing about in your new book? No, I'm absolutely all over the four pillars that it takes for people to put themselves first and take control of their career, which is all I write about and betting on you, and all I talk about with workers and leaders, because they are employees as well. And I think we've forgotten that work isn't the be-all, end-all. We suffer from workism in this country, and really within North America, and it's my journey to remind people that the business of running your life is the most important business. And if you do that well, work tends to figure itself out. There's great carryover effect from focusing on your own personal well-being. There's also amazing carryover effect from investing in continuous learning and learning how to take a risk and really focusing on this thing that I call self-leadership, which is autonomy. So these are themes that have permeated my work for the past 25 years permeated my research and really bring me to this point today where I'm trying to democratize the world of human resources and teach people that if you do these four things in your life, you can really be your own HR. You don't have to worry about some HR lady telling you no or solving your own problems because you can solve them yourself. Yeah, you know, I, I deal a lot with what to develop people by developing curiosity because I think if you develop curiosity, you're asking questions, you're developing empathy, you're developing innovative ideas, you're developing all these things that make you be uh, a better person. And a lot of that ties into your continuous learning. And, you know, all of it ties back to well being. And it, it, it all intersects of what you do and what mm-hmm. I do. So I want to talk about each of these one at a time, the four of them. Um, well being, you started with. And, uh, I get a lot of meditation um, discussions on the show of how people are getting much more about uh, that that type of uh, 
holistic thinking about how they how to make ourselves not be so stressed out is that what you mean by well-being is that bring into eating I and don't. exercise or what? i don't i don't mean that at all okay. because less than 10 percent of the population gives a rip about meditation that is not <laughs> something that's accessible or even realistic because our systems are mm-hmm. not built to give you five minutes to go and listen to your app when I talk about well-being, I do talk about three pillars, and they're physical, emotional, and financial. Mm-hmm. But physical well-being isn't about going and getting on a Peloton. It's about making sure that you do what you need to do to guard the only thing that you've been given in this world without a bill, which is your body. So that means thinking through the decisions you make about how you treat your body. I'm not saying everybody needs to run a 5K or do yoga. What I'm saying is, You need to get up. You need to move. You need to challenge your heart from time to time so that you're not this sedentary being. And you need to stop feeding your body corporate food. Or when you do feed your body corporate food, at least understand the decisions that you're making and maybe try to make a different decision from time to time. So this is really not pushing some sort of wellness agenda, but really having you step back and realize this body that you have is really the only thing you have free and clear. And you're going to have it until the day you die and the relationship with your body is yours. It doesn't belong to anybody else. So that's my physical well-being rant. Like, go to Weight Watchers or don't. I don't care. But at least understand the decisions behind putting that Oreo cookie in your mouth. (laughs) I think the second Uh most important thing that goes along with that is the emotional well-being because you can't have a relationship with your physical body unless you have a good relationship with your brain. That could be through meditation. That could be through a spiritual journey. That could be through just reading more. But, you know, so many of us have this aspirational life that we want to live, and we don't take the time to pursue it. And there are all sorts of reasons why we don't do this, but the number one reason is learned helplessness. I can't. I think I can't. And this is just a story you're telling yourself. And there's really no amount of therapy that can make you change your mind when people break through this this bubble of learned helplessness, it almost always comes from a really serious inflection point in your life. Are you going to wait for that to happen, or are you going to bring that about yourself? So that's the conversation I have in the book. And then the third thing is financial well-being, because quite honestly, none of us run our lives like a business. And if we just made some key, simple changes with our finances, really understanding how much we take in, how much we spend, and understanding that the core of all financial health is saving more than you spend. Until we start to have those conversations, we're never going to make any traction. So that's what I write about when I talk about well-being in my book. And I do that by telling personal stories of growth and failure and also sharing stories from people I know, successful people and people who are just like ordinary individuals who have made some different choices. Well, you know, you bring up a lot of good points in that, and I, I wanted to just touch on the learned helplessness because I I, I do uh, sure. a lot of training with um, developing curiosity, and one the four one of the four factors that keeps people from being curious is uh, I I have the acronym of FATE, which is fear, assumptions, technology, and environment, and the assumptions are really what you're talking about that voice in your head that tells you I'm not going to like this, this is going to be too hard, I can't do it, mm-hmm. and I think what the one way of um, overcoming these kinds of things is to even recognize that you're even saying these things to yourself. And so I love that okay. you touch on that. Um, and, I, and I want to go into the second one. With, was self-leadership the second one? Mm-hmm. Self-leadership okay. is the second bucket. I think a lot of people say, you know, I don't like it 
you know, when my boss tells me what to do, my boss is always wrong, or I don't like the rules, or I, this job drives me crazy because it's so bureaucratic. And the key to understanding how to fix work and to get past that is to realize that the only rules that exist are technically the rules you make up in your head. So if you know who you are and what you stand for and why you go to work, you can really start to reframe some of those rules and figure out, you know, what what applies to me and technically what doesn't. I'm here to tell you, I worked in human resources for over 15 years, like in the trenches. It is so hard to fire somebody. Like it, it really is just is. unbelievable. <laughs> So if you go to work and you see something that you think is dumb, you absolutely have the power to change that. You absolutely have the power to think through how you can make a difference in your own life and others. And you don't have to be a jerk about it, but there are ways to fix work that are within your control. So self-leadership is all about the art and science of individual accountability. And it starts with really understanding your goals, your values, who you are, what you believe in, and then all that other stuff that becomes the gossip and intrigue of your life fades away once you establish the core of your identity. But really doing that work to shore up the things you think you stand for and you believe in is the work of a lifetime. You uh, you know, I was, as you're saying that about how hard it is to fire someone, I was thinking about a company I work for. I mean, it's just people would not show up for a year and they still couldn't get fired or they... <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking a year. You still can't find. I. I it, it's just stunning. You can, me. but yeah, there it, are no self leaders in HR who will take a risk and do this. It, you know? it was crazy. That was crazy. Okay, so you you go on to um, continuous learning, which of course is my passion with curiosity. Yeah. So I'd love to hear your uh, take on that. Well, you know, I think there's something really interesting happening in the world where this, even the phrase continuous learning. When I say it, I want to throw up because it's not accessible. <laughs> you know, it's just uh -huh. not realistic for average ordinary professional workers they're like oh take your continuous learning and shove it because i have kids to raise and bills mm -hmm. to pay uh -huh. but um the word curiosity also evokes that in a lot of people so what i like to what i like to say is that we are in the golden age of learning there is nothing that you want to know that you can't find out for free so whether that's YouTube, Google, Coursera, LinkedIn Learning, I mean, there, you know, anybody who wants to get on LinkedIn Learning, I have a 30-day free code. Well, let me give that to you so you can go fulfill the dream of doing whatever it is you want to do. It's not the learning that's expensive. It's the credentialing that often sets people apart. So mm -hmm. don't just take yourself out of the game. Go pursue that learning. Go do that thing that you want to do and then if you get to the point where there's a challenge with credentialing there are all sorts of scholarships or you can invest in yourself there are ways to think through that but I just listen to people say you know I've always wanted to go back to school and be a dental hygienist well <sighs> you know you people say that all the uh -huh, time to me uh -huh. or I want to go be a yoga instructor I want to go learn about you know cellular biology all of that stuff is available out there for you. It's about the risk-taking. It's about really de-risking the process so that it doesn't feel like you have to choose one or the other, your current job versus the thing you want to do, your family versus your passion, right? These are false binary risks that we create, and they're just stories, again, you know, as we've talked about at the beginning of the episode, that we're telling ourselves. Well, you know, I agree with you on the words of how they come across as like, Ugh, what do you mean by that? You know what I mean? And, and so, you know, I was writing about curiosity. Um, I 
to me, what it was was getting out of status quo thinking in the workplace. It's just that everybody does the same thing the same way. Nobody knows why. The bell rings, you stand up, you sit down, and you have no idea what the reason is. Well, because it pays the bills. I mean, there's something in there about that primary need to Mm -hmm. at the very bottom of the pyramid to take care of ourselves. It's very difficult to get out of that thinking that if I am, if I invest in myself and I spend five extra minutes looking at something on YouTube, I'm not going to get fired. I mean, even professionals, the people who make six figures a year and are bonus are living in such financially precarious times that they're afraid to take that risk and bet on themselves. But again, I'm here to tell you that no one's going to fire you because you took five extra minutes or showed up at a meeting late because you were on Coursera. That's just not going to happen. You can wait a whole year of not showing up, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah. Some of this, I mean, I love your point, though, around Uh um, the language, because, you know, I I also think there's, uh, and and although I hate this, there's this gendered language we use around work, Mm -hmm. and there are just some individuals who are built into the system where they're never going to say, I'm curious because that sounds like something that's antithetical to their DNA. Mm -hmm. So for me, I don't, I try not to use that language. I'm like, I'm trying to use the language of my family, which is, (laughs) yeah, like, what are you doing with your life? Are you dumb? Do you Mm -hmm. really think you're going to get fired for being five minutes late to a meeting? Like Mm -hmm. when you start to speak in the language of people's families of origin, they go, oh yeah, I'm being stupid. Okay. Well, I I think maybe that's your next book. Are you dumb? Um, yeah, you want to change. <laughs> you want to change that. Right, right. I, but I I really yeah I definitely think that you know learned helplessness is is an interesting way of looking at it. There's a uh, you know with the things that uh, I picked as. Um, you know, assumptions. I mean, there's just, it's a hard thing to word certain things. I mean, we hear a lot about agility. Yeah. You hear a lot about, uh, you know, uh, adaptability. And there's just a lot of buzz words out there. And that turns there. off women, you know, heteronormative women. I think, you know, when I worked in human resources, we talked a lot about the locus of control. Mm-hmm. And nobody wants to hear that when they're raising children and trying <laughs> to get stuff done. They're like, do not give me a lecture on the locus of control, external, internal. I don't want to hear it. I, and I don't blame them because they're busy. I, you know, I personally would like a new word or phrase for value proposition because I think if I hear that one more time, <laughs> I'm have, raising my hands uh, in total affirmation. Oh, of that. absolutely! I can think yes. of people every conversation I have with them say that in every single conversation, and I'm thinking, yeah, I can't take that term anymore. I mean, I know what you're saying, but we got to come up. With, we have to have more of a thesaurus of. <laughs> We, of choices. we have to stop speaking like we're all part of corporate America. I, I think so. I think so. Yeah. Uh, but the last one is a risk-taking, and I want to get into that one. Um, what do you mean by risk-taking? Yeah. Well, one of the big themes in my book is that people um, are very afraid, and they operate out of this hermeneutic of fear, although I would never use the word hermeneutic in my book. So I tell people, <laughs> you know, I know, I know it's challenging to break the rules and to take a risk, but there are things that we can do to de-risk our, you know, chances that we take, our dreams. And one of the things I teach is something that's pretty big in the global corporate world, but people don't apply individually, and that's the pre-mortem. It's just a very simple exercise where you think about something that you really want to do, and you ask yourself, how will this fail? Not how might it fail, not how could it fail. You go, all right, I'm going to do this, and it's going to fail. How is it going to fail? 
and you set a timer for no more than two minutes. I like 60 seconds. And you get silly and you write down all the ways this thing you want to do is going to fail. So you can do it for a project around the house. I want to paint my office. How is it going to fail? Well, the dog might knock over the can of paint. How, you know, I might pick the wrong color. My masking job might be terrible. And when the timer goes up, you look at all the reasons that your project will fail and you have in front of you a gift. It's a roadmap. And if you just address the things on your list, you improve your chance of success by over 30%. This is a project, this is an idea that was formulated and really made popular by a professor named Dr. Gary Klein. And NASA does this, Intel does it, Cisco does it, IBM does it, people who build bridges do it. Pilots, before they set forth on a journey, look at the plane and go, how is this going to crash? Not how might it crash, not how will it crash, how is it going to crash? So for me, using that and then also thinking about it from a team perspective and looking at it like a Venn diagram. What are our areas of failure that are similar? What's a blind spot that maybe I didn't see? If you do this before doing inventory on a monthly basis, before redoing your company website, you're going to improve your chances of success by over 30%. So if you're interested in going back to school, or getting a credential, or maybe changing careers, or being a consultant, do a pre-mortem and tell yourself how you're going to fail. I used to like to do it before interviews because I knew I wouldn't make great eye contact. I would be fidgety. I might (laughs) talk too much as I'm doing on this podcast, right? There are a million things that I know about myself, and that pre-mortem gave me an opportunity to pause, reflect, and plan. So there you go, the pre-mortem. Well, I like it when people talk a lot on my show, so that's not a bad thing. Um, But, uh, you know, when you're talking about that, I'm thinking, you know, proactive thinking. I've taught horses and foresight where, you know, we get into, uh, you know, you get into Covey's five, you know, the seven habits. Uh Uh-huh, for sure. But you know what this all is? I'm going to interrupt you. This is just stoic thinking. Uh Aristotle, Socrates, they all used to practice the pre-mortem, and from there we created systems that we monetized and consultants got real excited about this and I want to I want to bring this down to brass tacks this okay. isn't something that's super formal this isn't something that you need to pay any money for the pre-mortem is free which makes it super powerful anybody in any position at any space on the corporate hierarchy or not on the corporate hierarchy can do the pre-mortem it's available to everybody and that's why it's so beautiful because you don't have to write a check or read a book to do the pre-mortem right sorry to interrupt no no and and 30 percent is a big thing you know what i mean yeah you know there are people out there thinking well how would you have foreseen covid or something else you know what i mean and you can't know everything you can we did foresee covid barack obama put together a task force and said one of the things that keeps me up at night is this fear of a global pandemic that would wipe out part of the population. He put together a task force and a playbook and it was ignored. So you can't necessarily account for a chain of command changing and people really not liking a previous administration because of their own racist tendencies. But we did foresee something called COVID-19 and there was a playbook and it was completely ignored. I think human behavior is such that we never want to default to failure and we never want to default to negative because we're sentimentally optimistic we're almost ruinously optimistic we think oh we want to dream about the possibilities of a better future but you can't have a better future unless you proactively plan 
for failure. So I think that's the great lesson of COVID. Like, we know how to fix this. We have also seen in Korea that they're doing, in Germany, they're doing amazing work with testing, right, and contact tracing, but we're not doing that any, anywhere here in America. So I'm sorry to get on a political rant, but <laughs> it's just really important for me that we don't throw out these examples and say, well, how could you predict this? We can predict much of what's happening in the world. We just choose not to. Yeah, I mean, I know that Bill Gates's video got a lot of attention. A lot of things got a lot of attention. And, of course, there were those who did see this, you know. And I'm thinking in terms of company leaders who really maybe didn't follow politics or those kinds of things. You know, it's hard to, to follow everything and know what exactly sure. is true. You know what I mean? Don't you think it's kind of hard for I just do, like I everyday do. That's Joe? A- a very, very good point, but I also think that companies who have thrived well during the pandemic were doing some good things that were best practices that set them up for success. A company that had to go and stand up a work-from-home program in three weeks was a company that was not tied into the employee experience before the pandemic and had negative or dwindling engagement scores. HR departments that are burnt out now were burnt out before the pandemic and not doing the work that they needed to do to really structure a credible, authentic HR department that was tied into the business's needs then, and they're still going to struggle during COVID and after COVID unless they really follow some 21st century best practices that are out there. So I think what is really happening right now is that the pandemic has illuminated a lot of the cracks, and there's a real opportunity, Diane, I mean, a true opportunity to do a post-mortem in an effective and meaningful way, but oftentimes what happens with the postmortem is we do it, we put it in a binder and we put it on a shelf, virtually or not. And I think that's the danger that we're in right now. We're gonna learn a bunch of lessons and then we're gonna forget them. So I think everybody who's listening to this has to really channel something that I write about in my book, which is being brave and bold and courageous and making sure that this doesn't become a secondary thought and we don't fall into the sentimentally ruinous thinking that 2021 is going to be where it's at and even 2022 if we don't really learn and implement some of the lessons from this pandemic we're going to repeat it in 2023 when the next global pandemic happens or whatever yeah i I really think this has been a very unique experience and it'll be interesting to see how seriously people recognize what changes need to be made based on what we've gone through and i think that your book is really timely and i think a lot of people are going to want to know how to read you know they can get it to read it and to find out more how to follow you is there somehow they that can reach you absolutely the easiest way is to go to bettingonyoubook.com that'll take you to my website where you can see all sorts of uh, pieces of information, what I'm thinking, what I'm reading, what I'm sharing. You can hear about my podcast. You can also buy the book. But I'm just super excited to connect with individuals who are doing brave and bold and courageous things in their own careers. So there's a contact me button on bettingonyoubook.com. So just email me. Say hi. Tell me the cool stuff you're doing and let me know what you see for the future of work. I'm really interested. Yeah, that's a great. That's I, I think that we need more people um, talking about some of this stuff. And this has been really fascinating. Laurie, thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, it's my honor and my privilege. Thanks again for asking. Oh, you're welcome. And we will be back right after this message. Do you know someone who might benefit from taking the Curiosity Code Index Assessment? The CCI is the first and only assessment that determines the factors that inhibit curiosity. It's simple. If you recommend the assessment to someone else, 
you can receive 20% of the purchase price that they pay when they take the CCI through the link provided by you. To obtain the link and become an affiliate, please go to drdianehamilton.com forward slash affiliate. Well, I'd really like to thank both Darian and Lori for being my guests today. We get so many great guests on the show. If you've missed any past episodes, you can find them on the website, of course, in addition to wherever podcasts air and in our uh, AMFM stations. We also transcribe the show. So everything we've talked about is linked to, which is really kind of nice. And since I've interviewed more than a thousand people on the site, I'm sure you've missed a show or two, so you can catch up on them there. Talk about binge listening. You'd have plenty to listen to. So hope you take some time to check out that. And I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And I hope you join us for the next episode of Take the Lead Radio. You've been listening to Take the Lead with Dr. Diane Hamilton on C-Suite Radio.